Um, and I want to introduce uh, our speaker for today real quick. Michelle Holland and her husband and their three kids uh, started attending. Um, they've been members of our church for a long time now, but they came during COVID. And so nobody knew that they were part of us. They were just like watching from home, um, but then started to come out. And, and Michelle has become a good friend to us and to, to staff. She actually just this past year, she wasn't here on our graduation Sunday, but just got her, her degree from Northwest Nazarene. Is that right? A, a master degree in pastoral ministry. And she has actually done quite a bit of traveling and speaking, um, particularly around the, the, um, the theological concept of neighboring and community. And she sent me a link to one of her talks and it was awesome. So I was like, okay, you have to come share with us uh, just your thoughts on this. So could we give a, a warm redemption? Welcome to Michelle Holland. It is really good to be with you here today. Um, as I've been preparing, it's honestly blessed me just to get ready to share with you today. When we spend time in God's word, we get to see how his story is continued through our lives. And I am excited to share about the truth that God has to, to speak to us today about neighborly love. Tim was just um, talking about us a little bit. We started attending about a year and a half ago, and I still kind of feel like a new person. <laughs> COVID kind of um, made that um, hard to connect, and so a lot of your faces are really familiar to me. We haven't maybe met or have a had a conversation, but I know myself and our family, we're looking forward to getting to know all of you in the days ahead. Um, as I've been reflecting the last couple of Sundays on this time this morning and getting ready to, to be here, I have been a lot more aware of how grateful it is that we get to gather here. I think COVID has just really brought about that in me to recognize just what a wonderful opportunity it is for us to worship together. And I hope that, as, that today as we worship, that you will also experience that same type of community that I was this last couple of weeks. This morning, we are going to be spending some time in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, uh, verses uh, 25 through 37. The majority of this passage is recognized as the parable of the Good Samaritan, and some of you may be very familiar with this story. Some of you, this may be brand new. For those of you that have heard it maybe, you know, 50 times, I think it's a good reminder to always go back and listen again and again and again to what God has to say to us about loving others. Luke includes this story directly following the return of 70 disciples that Jesus had just sent out ahead of him on his journey to, he's journeying to Jerusalem and he sends them out to share about the kingdom of God at hand. And he gives them his power and authority to heal, to drive out demons. And here they are right before this conversation we're about to unpack telling Jesus and reporting to him all that God has done through them. They were faithful and God was obedient. And here they are, they're excited, they're talking about it. And, and Jesus, um, along with praising God for the faithfulness, stops for a moment to instruct them to not become overly confident and what they were able to do. I think we can all relate to that, right? Our human tendencies want to say, well, 
look what I did. And God says, no, it's about me. It's about what I'm doing through you. And so he instructs them and and, and, but rather that they're, and tells them that their greatest joy and miracle is in the promise of their salvation. Sorry, I don't know what to do with my mask. <laughs> then appearing in the midst of this conversation in verses 25 through 28, Jesus is confronted with a question. And Luke identifies this person, this questioning person, as a lawyer. He's also recognized as a Jewish legal expert. And this question is portrayed in this story as kind of confrontational. There is a debate as to when this conversation occurs because the way that Luke includes this story, it appears that it's disrupting what Jesus is talking about to his disciples. However, there is some debate as whether it occurred then or later, but it does, the question really aligns with faithfulness and what Jesus is teaching his disciples. So, um, as he addresses Jesus, he, he refers to him or direct, uh, talks to him, he, sorry, he, he says, teacher. So it's a very formal address. And um, as he addresses him, he then asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, knowing him as an expert in the law, we know throughout the Gospels as we've spent time there that these Jewish legal experts were present in many of Jesus' conversations. They were there to make sure that Jesus was following the law and they wanted to catch him doing the opposite. They wanted to challenge him and see if they could imprison him and keep him from doing what he was doing. So he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? The lawyer's question, again, has caused debate among rabbis on the intent of it. And it's important that we understand that because when we walk into a conversation, we need to understand what happened before and even what the underlying currents are that are influencing the mood here. But the guarantee of blessing and eternal life seems to be this questioning lawyer's issue. It's his main concern. And so he is testing Jesus to see if he could answer the fundamental question, how will I be saved? By asking the lawyer... How do you read it? Jesus is sending this lawyer to reference, reference their shared source of authority, the Jewish law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God's revealed teaching and guidance for humankind through Moses. In fact, we just walked through um, a lot of this in Exodus. Jesus here is deflecting the lawyer's own question back onto himself by reciting what stands written by God. As I was reflecting on this particular part of the conversation that we're unpacking today, I couldn't help but take notice of Jesus' gentle teaching. This questioning lawyer, Jesus could have rebuked him. He could have sent him away, but rather he invites him to go back to what God says and continue listening we can learn a few lessons from this today. Continuing on in verse 27, the lawyer's answer to the question, how do you read it, says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, 
and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer's answer reflects a combination of two Old Testament verses that um, we also hear similarly from Jesus in Matthew 22. Jesus here acknowledges this, this lawyer's expertise in the law. He just, he did a good job. He gave a great answer and responds by saying, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Notice Jesus' instruction here suggests an action. We'll talk about that a little later. I also can't help but insert some sarcasm here. That's definitely not Jesus, but me. <laughs> um, as this questioning lawyer is questioning the Messiah, teacher versus teacher here, he doesn't know who he is, but my mind inserts sarcasm when I read that, but I know Jesus doesn't do that. Here the lawyer, in his answer, quotes God's law, combining Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. The first part of this passage that we recognize as the great commandment is from Deuteronomy 6.5, which is actually the beginning of the Shema. This, uh, the Shema was something that good Jews were instructed to recite two times a day. So this lawyer would have known this passage like the back of his hand. And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second part, Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then we hear Jesus repeating something very similar in Matthew 22. Jesus here, again being challenged by a Jewish religious leader on the greatest commandment, says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I want us to notice here that all three passages reveal God's desire for Israel to listen and pay attention. Just like we heard in Exodus 22, when God revealed the Ten Commandments to Israel through Moses, beginning by saying, I am the Lord your God, listen to me. This is how I desire you to live in my presence. The problem here. The lawyer's answer about eternal life is concrete. He knows the law well, but misses it. Jesus answered, do this and you will live, in verse 28, directly challenges the lawyer to put this knowledge of God's love to heart. This is an unlimited here and now response of love towards others that flows out from us when God is at the very center, the heart of our whole being. Remember that the passage says heart, soul, mind, and strength, because when God is at the center at our heart, his love flows out into every part of us. Our love for God and others is one and the same. This, this kind of love is not housed in a compartment of our lives, not just in our intelligence or our emotional responses, our consciousness or our drive. It is a whole person, 
ongoing, lifelong transformation that occurs when relationship with God is nurtured and placed at the center of our lives through our salvation. The issue of love here is the key to revealing Christ's free gift of salvation to the world. I can't help but hear John 13, 35 when I say this. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Moving on to, to verse 29. But he, this expert in the law, Luke says, wants to justify himself. After Jesus instructs him to live out the commandment that just rolled off of his tongue. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It appears that this instruction make, is making this lawyer squirm a little bit in his seat. The question of who indicates that the lawyer is looking for Jesus to give neighbor a prescribed identity. In fact, if this conversation, as Luke positions it to appear, falls in the middle of Jesus' teaching to his disciples, I can only wonder if I place myself in this story about the thoughts of this lawyer. I think this is maybe some things he was thinking. I think we need to clarify what you mean here. Because who you are touching, interacting with, and teaching violates everything I know. So I just need you to clarify for me what you mean by doing likewise, because I have some restrictions. Oh, how I think we can relate to this answer sometimes. When we go to God with a question, but with an underlying agenda of what we're willing to do and not to do. If the teacher of the law understood love God and love neighbor as one and the same, if he would have kept listening beyond what he recited, just as God and Jesus instruct their, his people to do, if he would have better understood that God's definition of neighbor, like God's love, had no boundaries, no limitations, and laws and rules would not have become center in a measuring stick of faith and love. In fact, within the Torah, what this legal expert would have known, like the back of his hand, we just mentioned this earlier, was God's clear and detailed instruction on social responsibility. We just, we just journeyed through a lot of this in Exodus over the summer and just concluded a few weeks ago. In Exodus 22, it says, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, one who's from another ethnic group, group but had chosen to live among the Jews. These are God's words of instruction to his people. Do not take advantage of the widow or fatherless. And this one, I really like this one. It's very detailed. If you lend money to one who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Do not charge interest. And if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, as collateral for what they owe you, return it by sunset because the cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. This is very, very detailed instruction 
of how God's people were to live in God's economy. Walter Brueggemann, who I'm going to quote here in a little bit, he actually has a video and he talks about this and he says this is quite the investment for a 30-year note (laughs) to return the neighbor's cloak every night until the loan's paid off. It's commitment. It's this desire that I flourish when you flourish. Continuing on, Jesus, though, rejecting all attempts to diminish the responsibility of neighborly love, tells this parable that we will read here in a minute that undoubtedly flips this Jewish lawkeeper's understanding of neighborly love upside down. In verse 30 through 37, Jesus says, A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, also known as a Levite, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. And going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, Jesus says to the lawyer, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes. Now go and do the same. Up on the screen here um, in a second, there's going to be a picture of this, of this road that Jesus describes in this parable. And this journey, that, um, this path that Jesus um, tells this, where this story takes place is from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was known to be rocky, treacherous, and dangerous. It was about 18 miles in length and descended quite rapidly when going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So it was steep. It looks hot when I was looking at it. It looks um, dusty. And here on this road, we find the most unlikely combination of people. Three of them are given an identity by Jesus, which makes them the focus of the story. A priest, a minister in the temple, an example of piety, A Levite, also a minister in the temple, but recognized as a priest's assistant. And a Samaritan, viewed by Jews as a socio-religious outcast. They warred over their disagreements on where worship of God should take place to death. The Jews equated Samaritans with eating pork. They were unclean. In fact, if we go back and, uh, to John 4, Jesus tells a story about encountering a Samaritan woman. 
And in that conversation, we come to understand this, this disassociation and why they don't, why they are not allowed to spend time together. In fact, she says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. First off, as a woman and a man, together alone, that was definitely not acceptable. And she says to him, how can you ask me for a drink? I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, which was Mount Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. This caused great tension between Samaritans and Jews that they warred for years and years over this. With the lawyer's question at hand, Jesus here in this story depicts an injured man without classification. He has no name, no title. He's just a human being who has been beaten and left for dead. Not one, but two Jewish leaders, ministers in the temple of God, thought to be a depiction, an example of how to live, reject to attend to the needs of this man. However, the Samaritan, portrayed without any status, puts, Jesus puts the most emphasis on him. He is the one who showed compassion. The priest and Levite, they don't just walk by this man, they go to the other side of the road. They came, they saw, and they've passed on. No motive was present for their response, but scholars have highlighted a few. Um, fear of becoming unclean for touching a dead corpse. But even a priest had an obligation to bury a ne neglected corpse if the man was presumed dead. But they didn't even get close enough to know if he was dead or alive. Interaction with a possible sinner and concern of being robbed themselves while attending to the needs of this man, regardless of the motivation, which isn't made known, they did nothing for the woman, wounded man. The Samaritan, however, the most unlikely hero in a Jewish storybook, which probably would have been banned or burned by them if it was, overshadows the exemplary Jewish faith with the care of this dying man. Not only does the Samaritan notice and have compassion on the man, but take, your, take a moment to place yourself in this story on this road. He bandages his wounds. He doesn't have band-aids, so most likely he took cloth from his own clothing. He used whatever an oil and wine he was traveling with to disinfect and soothe the wound. He picked up the man he would have had to to put him on his donkey and take him to an inn. He paid for the inn out of his own pocket and stayed with the man to care for him. And then it was time for him to keep going on his journey, so he promised to leave money for his continued recovery and return to pay any other recurred, ex incurred expenses not to mention, we don't know what he was doing or where he was going. We have no idea if he was in a hurry. He put everything he had planned 
aside to attend to the needs of the stranger. He came. He saw. He was moved with compassion. He went to the man and cared for him. Just when you think the Samaritan in this story has gotten uncomfortably close, he takes one step closer. Again and again and again. Love others as you love yourselves is imaged in our minds as the Samaritan lavishly loves. Let this story sit in your minds. Think on it. Think of the example that Jesus is portraying for us, for this lawyer. The truth, Jesus, his love for us and others begins to become clear and takes one step closer each time we reach out. Each time the Samaritan gets one step closer, we begin to taste and see that the Lord is good, just as Psalm 34, 8 says. Reading on, verse 36, Jesus asks, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the experts reply, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's that action, just as we saw at the beginning. Take what you know of God and let it ring true in your heart so that you also can go and love. Mercy, the key word here. <laughs> the neighbor is identified by his acts of mercy, an extravagant attribute of God's activity that we learned of last week in Exodus 34. 13 attributes of God are recognized in verses 6 through 7 of Exodus 34, meaning over the top. A few being compassion, as we heard in this story, grace, mercy, slow to anger, loving kindness, forgiving iniquity, pardoning transgression. The answer was in the how. God's way of activity through us in the world. Neighborly love is recognized by these acts of mercy towards the stranger. The purity holiness matrix for this lawyer has been capsized. Jesus clearly identifies the neighbor in the story as among the strangers and the poor. The message is clear that when we narrow our view of neighbor down to a geographical location, or racial identity, we limit our responsibility. The truth, truth most likely has this lawyer in a quandary. His life work, his very life, are at stake if he were to follow the truth revealed to him. This message speaks to the way God works through a willing heart an imperfect vessel. In spite of the passivity we see here portrayed in the religious leaders. Verse 37, Jesus' instruction. Go and do likewise. It's present tense. 
Jesus is calling the lawyer to be a neighbor like the Samaritan. The lawyer has recognized and articulated with his own mouth the answer to his question. The conversation, however, is left open-ended. Walter Brueggemann states, and I have to say, you wouldn't think we would go a Sunday without mentioning him, right? <laughs> Our task is to be an imaginative interpretation and reconstruction of the Torah. God's word to his people. So that the relationship we have with God will not be some old, tired requirement, but will be as fresh and as urgent and as risky as listening could possibly be today. It is a much harder way of being church. But it is asking now, what does the Lord require of us, Redemption Church? Jesus has made clear that the greatest act of love we can do for God happens in the daily choices we make to go forth into our day with eyes open to see where God invites us to join him and with, with a willing and ready heart, a willing spirit to continue the work of God in the world with open hands ready to serve. The Samaritan came and saw and was moved with compassion. He went to the man and cared for him. The greatest commandment requires that our love for God and others are one and the same. It is a whole person response. It took every fiber of the Samaritan's being to care for this dying stranger. Love, sacrifice, time, money, safety, blood, sweat, and if it were me, a crier, a few tears along the way. When we invite God to be the Lord of our lives, his desire is to remain at the center of our hearts. Guiding and discerning our thoughts, our emotions, longings, and actions so that we continually grow into his likeness. The problem, however, as we stated before with the lawyer, it's the same. When we allow our relationship with God to grow stale and become some old, tired requirement, as Walter Brueggemann states, when we stop listening to God's unfolding story and instruction that, by the way, he desires to continue through us, he begins to gradually slip, slip out of the center and we begin to place him in a compartment of our lives or maybe hide him in a box, like the Sunday school song used to say, taking him out when it's convenient or when it benefits us or when we need a pat on the back or to check a box on our to-do list. About 15 years ago, God began a journey with me. And I say journey here because it's continuing. It's still going on today. To discover how deeply I could love my neighbor through the strength, grace, love, and power of the spirit in my life. We had just moved into our very first house, very excited. And God had placed a desire in me to know my neighbors. I knew, I knew, I grew up in the church. I knew 
that to be a disciple was to love others. I knew that, but this burden was different. I would wake up thinking about it and go to sleep thinking about it. I knew God had something to show me, but I wasn't clear on it exactly. Only a few days into our new house, I found myself weaving my way down the stairs through moving boxes to my living room in the early morning hours. That time, it was the best time to be alone. To pray for the people in the houses that I could see outside my windows. In fact, I I titled these, I've talked about these before, and I titled them my window prayers. They were my way of responding to God's stirring in my life. I prayed for creativity of mind and opportunity to connect. I prayed that God would fill my mind, body, and spirit with the strength to connect with those that I lived among. In the beginning, I would find myself with reservation about the who, just like this lawyer. In fact, as God guided and opened doors for connection, I call these times a shaky knee walk across the street because obedience is not void of some fear. I desired to be like the Samaritan, but my faith was a little shaky. I wasn't sure if I was ready for the who I would encounter on the other side of the door. And let me tell you, some of those stories are interesting. I wasn't sure if I was ready to let God have all of me, but the stirring desire to know God, to hear him remained. So I would pray for just a few houses that I could see And as God revealed himself and his faithfulness, so did the strength of my heart, my soul, and my mind. I have many, many, many stories for another time about the beginning and continuation of that journey with God. But what I can tell you is that as I allowed God to find his place at the center of my life, his desire became mine. His strength became my strength. My love deepened for him and then extended out from me to others. His thoughts became my thoughts. Only by his grace did I trust him to use this rather imperfect vessel to become an essence of himself in the world. And I cry, get teary-eyed every time I tell this story. Because as time went on, I discovered that neighborly love was not limited to a location, but was Christ's essence in me and you, in action. And I could choose to nurture and carry it with me at home, at work, at sporting events, at coffee shops, around dinner tables, and wherever I was among God's creation, humanity in need of compassion. I want to conclude with a quote by Brennan Manning. He writes this in his book, Abba's Child. In every encounter, we either give life or we drain it. There is no neutral exchange. We enhance human dignity or we diminish it. The success or failure of a given day is measured by the quality of our interest and compassion towards those around us. We define ourselves by our response to human need. The question is not how we feel about our neighbor, but what have we done for him or her? We reveal our heart in the way we listen to a child or speak to the person who delivers our mail, bear an injury, and share our resources with the indigent. 
what we do to others, we do to him. Discipleship is not about being right or being perfect or being efficient. It's all about the way you live with each other. And here we hear Jesus' words uttered once again. Go and do likewise. Redemption Church, this is hard work. It's a lifelong journey of placing God at the center so that his love flows out through us, so that we become the essence of Christ's love and a foretaste of glory divine in the world, in this life, here, now, and today that he has given us. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to find our place in your story and that you would just continue to invite us in to keep listening to what you have to say to us. I pray, God, that your truth today will ring in our ears. Go with us as we leave this place. And God, I pray just as we see Jesus, the gentle teacher, teaching us and and guiding his disciples, God, that you would just continue to do that as we leave this place. God, help us to grow in our faith and love towards others and towards you and ourselves. Help us to see ourselves as a reflection in your eyes. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your gracious and compassionate and merciful love. Amen. Amen invite you to stand now, and we're going to receive communion. And the way that we do this at Redemption, hang on, Michelle, make sure you unplug. Um, The way we do it at Redemption, we'll just be um, dismissed by ushers row by row. And when you come forward, they'll offer you a plate. um, Actually, not the bread and the cup. You'll you'll get offered the the little shrink-wrapped thing, which is lame, but it's what we have to do right now. But they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ, and you can say amen or say, I will remember The reason we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and um, gave thanks for it, all his disciples with him. And and then he he passed it around to them and he said, "Um, this is my body broken for you. And he had them eat a little bit of the bread. And then he did the same thing with a cup. He said, this is is, um, my blood, um, the blood of a new covenant, a new deal between humanity and God. He made them all drink of it. And the symbolism is that um, they were kind of taking his body and blood, taking his life into their life, and then becoming made of that stuff to live out into the world in exactly the ways that Michelle was describing today, as as a neighbor, as a friend to whoever feels rejected, whoever gets outcast. That that's where we go. And so he said, every time we get together. Eat this bread, drink this cup, remember the new deal, become my body and blood in, in the world. And, and this is why we receive communion. So I, I would invite you to uh, pray with me as we bless the, the bread and cup. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this feast. And um, may it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us and make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness.
to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?